0: Hello and welcome to the Satan Center Podcast. This is a reformed podcast for God's people to find their rest in the finished work of Christ. My name is Brian. I'm joined by my co host, Daniel, and we're really excited to dive in today. Thank you for joining us. So, as a reformed podcast, we hold to the reformed view on theology, and that's generally encompassed in the five solas. And so those are. Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, Sola Scriptura, and Sola Deo Gloria. And translated, that is, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, all to the glory of God alone. And so one of those points, Sola Scriptura, is the topic of discussion today, and that's what we're going to dive into. So I'm going to kick it over to Daniel so he can briefly find what Sola Scriptura is.
1: Yeah, so Sola Scriptura is the Reformation doctrine that means the scriptures alone are the final rule and authority for the Christian faith. And that means I don't add anything to the Bible. Uh, it means that things like reason and experience and tradition, they come under the Bible and bow to that. They're not on the same level as the Bible. And now this, this idea of Sola Scriptura was absolutely pivotal and central to the Reformation. And so you, you'll hear people rightly say the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the doctrine upon which the church will stand or fall. But the reason why that is the case is because it was grounded from the scriptures themselves. As Martin Luther, as Calvin, as the Reformers read the Bible, they, they realized that the Bible is the sole authority for the Christian faith. And so when the Roman Catholic Church is teaching, we're not, we're not justified by faith alone, but also by works. They went back to the Bible and said, look, actually, uh, the Bible uh, is our sole authority, and it says that we are saved um, solely on Christ alone. Now, let let me just say this. The Sola Scriptura didn't pop up for the first time uh, in the days of Martin Luther and Calvin. It's not like they reinvented the wheel or came up with anything new. Uh, They were a lot clearer, but this understanding was developing uh, throughout church history. And so... There's a book called The Church of Rome at the Bar of History by Webster. I commend that book to you. It's by Banner of Truth. And at the back of this book, there are loads of quotes from early church fathers that shows that uh, this isn't a new idea that Luther came with. This is something that the church has taught from the very beginning.
0: That's exactly right. So if you actually look at how we get our Bible today, there's many people out there who would point to the Council of see and say, that's where they decided which books would be in and which books would not be in that didn't make the cut. That's not at all what church history teaches. In fact, these people were quoting from the Bible from the very beginning. You know, the apostles had individuals who learned underneath them. We would call them the church fathers. And so these individuals took these letters from them and continued to quote them as scripture through their ministries and through their works. So they would continue to write letters of their own, and they would quote the letters of the New Testament. And so when it gets to the Council of Nicaea, it's not them just deciding which books are going to be in or which books are going to be out. It's them depending on the Bible that was quoted from the very beginning, the Old Testament and New Testament books that were always referenced to. And so even the church fathers at the very earliest days of Christianity stood on Scripture as their only authority, as their primary authority, the ultimate authority. And that's how they... Unpacked what they actually believed.
1: Yeah, so so maybe we can use this time to contrast sola scriptura with some of the other traditions that you will find in what's often called Western Christianity. And so you've got the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox Church, which will teach scripture and tradition that they are on par with one another. You have the liberal church, and then also branches of modern evangelicalism. And what I have are three different quotes, and it's kind of a spot the difference, and I'll 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 let Brian play this game. So I'm going to read three statements, one from a Roman Catholic scholar, one from a liberal theologian, and then I'll read the Westminster Confession of Faith, which will be our tradition. And, see, and and for those who are listening, see if you can spot the difference when it comes to this whole question of authority. What is the final authority and what is the rule of faith? So this is from Peter Kreeft, a Roman Catholic scholar. He says this, the church gives us her tradition like a mother giving a child hand-me-down clothing that has already been worn by many older sisters and brothers. But unlike any earthly clothing, this clothing is indestructible because it's not made of wool or cotton, but truth. It was invented by God, not man. Sacred tradition must be distinguished from all human traditions. And then he said this, Sacred tradition is part of the deposit of faith which also includes sacred scripture. That's the Roman Catholic guy. Then we've got a liberal theologian who says this. He says, The essential idea of liberal theology is that all claims to truth in theology, as in other disciplines, must be made on the basis of reason and experience, not by appeal to external authority. Christian scripture may be recognized as spiritually authoritative within The Christian experience, but its word does not settle or establish truth claims about matters of fact. And then we've got the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says, The supreme judge, by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and whose sentence we are to rest. Can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. Brian, is there a difference between any of those statements? Absolutely. What's the difference? So, you have in the Roman
0: Catholic faith and the Orthodox tradition that, uh, well, tradition itself becomes authoritative. It's elevated and set on the same shelf as Scripture. They're on par with one another. So it's not that there is an ultimate authority that we can hold to in God's word. It's that we have to look at human traditions and the unpacking of church history to give us a standard that we need to sit on top of, along with the scripture itself. And what the problem there is, tradition so often contradicts itself. You have popes that say things that contradict other popes. You have documents that contradict older documents. And then you have points in history where they feel like they can't go back on things they once said because they have to see tradition as being indestructible. It's quite different from the liberal view. The liberal just departs from scripture as much as they feel they want to. But whether they agree with a passage or you know, disagree with a passage, that's up to them. So they become the arbiter. They, they, they're the ones who say, well, that's true and that's not true. Well, how do I decide that? Because my own personal experience and reasoning says that it's wrong. So you have one sense, the tradition becomes, in, in the Orthodox and Catholic faith, becomes the authority. And then the liberal sense, I become the authority. My mind, my intellect, my abilities, I decide what is right and wrong. And then you have the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Reformed Tradition. What's the authority there? God's word. Because in the Reformed view, the word of God, the Bible, when we look at what's in it, it's as if God himself has given the utterance. That's what Calvin said. When we mine out the scriptures, it's not just the ideas of multiple men throughout generations. There is a divine author. He is the one who has laid out his own words through people.
1: So we came across a, a helpful quote online that says, Scripture is to be understood as the sole source of divine revelation, the only inspired, infallible, final, and authoritative norm of faith and practice. That is what we're, we're trying to say. Now, what we'll do is break this down. And so that first word there is the word inspired, the only inspired norm of faith and practice. Now, inspired doesn't mean inspirational. And so you might think of the works of Monet and da Vinci as inspired works. These men were inspired to paint their art. Or you might think of Beethoven or Bach, and their works were inspirational. And so what that means is they inspire something in us, they inspire us. We're not saying that about the Bible when we're talking about inspiration. Now, of course. The Bible does inspire us, it does move us, but it is so much more than that. Really, a better word than inspiration is the word expiration. And it's found in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, where Paul says, All scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed, that's what we mean. And so Jesus, well, Moses says, and Jesus quotes this too, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. That comes from the mouth of God. We believe that the Bible is not just the word of God, but the words plural of God. And that even includes the grammar. And so, one place to see this is in Galatians 3, verse 16, where an entire argument is made on the fact that the word seed in Genesis is singular and not plural. So, a whole argument is made on the grammar of god's word jesus does the same thing when he's debating the sadducees that's a religious um, group of people and they're talking about the resurrection and they don't believe in the resurrection and jesus says basically no that's a load of rubbish the resurrection is true how do we know that and jesus quotes the old testament where god says i am the god of abraham isaac and jacob not i was if they're dead then god was the god of abraham isaac and jacob but is i am the god And so again, an entire argument is made on the grammar of the words in the Bible. And so when we're talking about inspiration, we mean every single bit, every single letter, every single dot and T in scripture, inspired by God. Now, how does he inspire, though? Is it just kind of
0: writing it himself? Does he give these words and they appear magically
1: on paper? Yeah. So let's take uh, the letter Paul's letter to the Romans. Yeah. So so Paul was a Muslim. (laughs) No. no, So um, no. so, So let me let me just explain that. So the Muslim view when when it comes to inspiration is that Muhammad was entirely passive and he was basically possessed to write down every word that came from supposedly Allah's mouth. No. So so we're we're not Muslims when we talk about inspiration. So as Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, he really wrote that letter. He had a purpose for writing that letter. He says so in chapter 1, verse 15, that I desire to bring and get the gospel to you. That's why I'm writing this letter. And, you, and, and so you can sense that, can't you? When you read these letters, there's the flavor of the apostle Paul in these letters. In the same way, when you think about the gospels, John feels really Johnny and Mark feels really Marky. So Mark has a particular flavor as he's writing. And you can see that the guy is behind the gospel. He's like an action man, isn't he? He goes from one scene to the next, whereas John is more drawn out. He has discourses as he explains his theology. And so as John, as Mark, as Paul, as these men write scripture, they really are writing it themselves. But God, the Holy Spirit, is inspiring the words as they write them. Absolutely. And so what we're saying is there's an organic relationship between the two. It's not God or man. It's God and man together. I think
0: that's often one of the objections that skeptics would have about Christianity is that, no, oh, that's a book written by men. And we wouldn't disagree with that. It is a book written by men. But there are two authors at play unfolding the Bible. There are the human authors, and there is the divine author, God's Spirit, who is enabling and leading these men through their own personalities and through their own vocabulary and their own words, but he's leading them to write his own words. So you have something that comes out in Paul that has his personality soaking through the pages, and yet God's Spirit is speaking through him. And so the two are true. There is a human author, but there is a divine author. So what about
1: infallibility? What does that mean, Brian?
0: When we talk about scripture, there's two related words, inerrant and infallible. Inerrant means that the Bible is without error. There's nothing in it that we can point to and say, there's a problem. There is something that is not right. Infallibility is that the Bible cannot be wrong in what it does proclaim. So here we have a perfect document. There are no contradictions. There are no errors because God is one who is perfect. And in him, there are no contradictions, there are no errors. So therefore, when he speaks, his words cannot have error, his words cannot have contradictions, because he is a perfect God, and what we have
1: in Scripture are his very own words. So what about the people that will sometimes challenge the Bible and say, look, there's so many contradictions all over the Bible. And so they might point to the resurrection narratives at the end of the Gospels and say, look, in one, you get one angel and another two. And then in another, it's a man dressed in white. Aren't these contradictions? Well,
0: I think there's two ways to approach passages like that, especially when you're looking at the resurrection uh, kind of parts of the Bible. You can look at it in one sense and say, and there's a lot of people out there doing great scholarly work on this. How do I harmonize these accounts together in a way that they unpack in a linear way and say, okay, these events all took place, but here's how they piece together. The other way would be to observe the human condition in the way we express things we witness. There's an author called J. Warner Wallace. He wrote a book, which is titled Hold Case Christianity. Now, Mr. Wallace was a homicide detective, and throughout his career, he attended many court cases and watched witnesses on the stand and pieced together arguments for various convictions and whatnot. But through that experience he realizes that when a witness is telling the truth oftentimes their stories won't match up you see if you and i came together and we went to a court case and we witnessed a crime and you and i said exactly the same things as the other as if it was scripted it would tell us that that's most likely not a true statement that's most likely a conjured a fabricated witness statement But if we are saying something that we personally saw with our own eyes and experienced for ourselves, remembered different things, other parts of the occasion popped up to us more clearly than the other, then you would expect to see some variations there. You would expect us to recount it a little bit differently because we're humans and humans have different ways of seeing things and we aren't perfect and we remember things differently.
1: Great, so that's, that's infallibility. And then we've got the word authoritative. That just means the Bible has the final word and the final say on the things of which it teaches. And so that means we're not saying that the Bible is the final authority on things it doesn't discuss. Right, so the Bible doesn't teach me how to do trigonometry. It doesn't tell me how to be an engineer and design a bridge. It doesn't tell me how to, to dismantle the fan that's sitting in front of me. It is the final authority on salvation, doctrine, and godliness. But what happens when we move away from this? Why do we need to uphold Sola Scriptura? Does it it really matter at the end of the day?
0: It matters in a lot of ways. And one of the primary ways is, what are you standing on? When you abandon Scripture as the authority, let's say, as the liberal Christians are doing today, You almost change the God you worship, right? So if I'm going to the Bible and I open it up and I decide for myself, I don't like that passage, so I'm going to get rid of it. Well, that one's okay. I'll keep that one around. Well, I don't like that one, so that's got to go. Well, what would stop me from just burning the entire Bible and replacing it with the Book of Mormon or with the Quran or any other amounts of books out there? maybe I just want to read the Lord of the Rings and I supplant the Bible with that. Now that's
1: my religion. So that's what Marcion did, didn't he? He basically said, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. And so let's chop that off, throw it in the bin and just go with the God of the New Testament. Absolutely.
0: And what you're doing there is now you are forming a God in your own image. You're forming a God after your own likeness. You're saying, well, if I can just get rid of the passages I don't like, that God will suit me better. He will look a lot more like I want him to look. And when you do that, you're no longer worshiping God. You're worshiping yourself. The same thing can be said about the Roman Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church. What they conclude about what is true is based on the current whims of the organization itself. The Pope wants to see it one way, he will. Another Pope wants to see it the other way, he will. If the organization of the Roman Catholic structure decides one thing, therefore it's authoritative for good. So again, you're changing the God you worship. It is now the God made in the image of the organization, made in the image of the Pope. So any of these ways, when you leave behind Scripture as your ultimate authority, you change God into
1: one that is not God. Yes, so this isn't an abstract problem. This is a real problem, isn't it? And I know people in my life, people really dear to me who used to hold to Sola Scriptura and maybe not to the Reformed faith, but to an evangelical flavor of the faith who now are so far from that. And it began by what you're saying there, Brian. They began to create a God in their own image. And so this person that I'm thinking of, he was looking at the Old Testament and seeing some of the things that God commands to Israel to go into you know, the Canaanite nations and, and slaughter them. And he was basically saying, look, well, that can't be right. I don't like that. And our culture today would say that that's wrong. Therefore, there's something wrong with that passage. And so rather than reading books and speaking to other Christians who've spoken about these things, you know, for 2,000 years, he decided to say, well, maybe that means that the Israelites got it wrong. They had a wrong understanding of God. God isn't a God of anger. He doesn't judge sin. And so what that inevitably led to was his view, and this is a true story, by the way. Now when he looks at the cross, he would say, What's happening at the cross is not God judging sin on Christ and in Christ, but rather just a display of love. And so the cross becomes, rather than a penal substitutionary work on my behalf, it becomes an example that I need to live by. And so you lose the gospel. By losing sola scriptura and bowing to scripture as the final authority on every word, you eventually lose things like justification by faith alone. And now he's you know, LGBT affirming and all these other things too. And it's a slippery slide. That's the thing. It's, it's exactly right. You know, it, it, if you take that first step
0: and you remove a certain part of the Bible that you don't agree with, it's very easy to see how you can now remove anything you don't agree with. It just takes that view of the Bible where you see it as, as not high. It's not a, an authoritative book kind of from the mouth of God, it's now a book that we can kind of mold and shape according to our own whims. And I think Beeky, he has a quote where he he says, you know, the Calvinist or even the Reformed Christian understands that we cannot pass judgment on scripture, rather scripture passes judgment on us. And so what we have to do is recognize that this book is authoritative because it comes from an authoritative God. He is big, he is, he is our, our only one sovereign and we come to him as our only true authority but he speaks he's a speaking god and he has given us his words therefore when we come to the bible we don't get to decide what we want from the bible we don't get to decide what we can pick and choose out of the bible but that bible is our authority and it
1: governs us not the other way around so, Brian, do you, do you want to talk to us about the analogy of faith? What does that mean?
0: So the analogy of faith is essentially a principle of interpretation whereby we see the entire Bible as one coherent revelation of God. So we look at it and find no contradictions. God is a God without contradictions. Therefore, his revealed word should not contradict itself. So we come to a verse, and when we look at it and try to interpret what it means— we cannot interpret it in a way that forces it to contradict another part of the Bible that would be an error, so the analogy of faith essentially teaches us how to harmonize the scriptures and how to see that anything we draw out and gain from the Bible needs to be um, harmonized or needs to be consistent with the rest of the Bible. This is also related to another principle called uh, that we that we would say is that the clear passages of the Bible interpret the unclear passages of the Bible. Because the entire scriptures are the revealed word of God, when we come to um, a verse that might seem a little bit confusing and not very clear, we can then find other verses in the Bible that might say it more clearly or more plainly and use those verses to help us interpret that less clear passage. And both of those principles are important to the way we approach the Bible.
1: And I think leading on from that, we can talk about the, this issue of Biblicism. Now, Biblicism is it's a fundamentalist approach to reading the Bible, where you read the Bible in a wooden and flat way. You read the Bible as though it's disconnected from church history and some theological categories. and And, and you read the Bible... In in a simplistic way. And so what, one example might be, you turn to James chapter two, and there James says that we are not justified by faith alone, but also by our works. And the Biblicist would say, Well, I'll just take that at face value. Okay, so I am declared righteous, I'm justified by my faith and by what I do. <laughs> Whereas the non-biblicist and the reformed tradition would say, No, 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 as Brian has just been speaking about on the analogy of faith we read the bible in light of the bible and so the apostle paul in in romans 3 and in romans 4 says we're justified by faith apart from works and so we're reading james 2 in light of the whole of the bible and so the question then becomes well what does james mean when he says that we're justified by our works and by faith he can't be meaning the same thing that paul's meaning uh he must be talking about being vindicated so we're vindicated by our works. And so our works show that we are already justified, where Paul is speaking about something else. And so, and so what we're trying to get at is a biblicist reads the Bible in a very wooden way without taking into context what the rest of the Bible says and without taking into context church history. And so one example might be, well, I remember R. Scott Clark once saying, all heretics quote scripture, and so if you if you think about the third and fourth century and the debate around the person of Christ and the Trinity, and you've got, you know, two key figures, don't you? Arius and Athanasius. It's not like Athanasius was quoting Scripture and Arius wasn't. No, both of them were quoting scripture, but Arius is what we would call a Biblicist. <laughs> and so he would read passages in the Bible. So for example, Jesus saying, uh, the Father is greater than I am. Or where Jesus says the Son of Man doesn't know the hour of his return, only the Father knows that day. When Arius would read that in a very Biblicist, simple, wooden way. Whereas whereas Athanasius and then later St. Augustine, they would be asking the question, as Jesus is speaking, is he speaking as Lord or is he speaking as servant? It can't be that Jesus is speaking as Lord in those instances because Jesus is God. And so he's not lesser than the father in his divine nature. Therefore, he must be speaking as a servant, as our representative, as a human representative come to die in our place. Jesus is lesser than the father. And so Athanasius would use the great tradition of the early church fathers. He would use theological categories and and words and constructs, whereas Arius would be a biblicist. He wouldn't want to go anywhere other than the Bible, which sounds really pious and sounds great. But actually, that's how you end up in heresy. There's also the way that he approaches the Bible, right?
0: So he looks at that that passage in the Bible and he says, look, there it is. Jesus is lesser than the Father. Automatically, we must assume that he's not God. And you think, well, that's a weird way of interpreting it. When you read all the other passages, Jesus referring himself to himself as the I am or before Abraham was, you know, I am and and the different passages that he kind of uh, allude to this one being the first and the last revelation passages of him being the Alpha and the Omega, you know things that are attributed to God alone, and you think, well, what's going on here? There's a lot of different moving parts here, but if you look at just one, the the kind of cherry-picking mentality of, of Arius, you can conclude, oh, if you just look at this verse, Jesus is not God. Now, the problem there is the Bible has a lot of truths to teach that aren't explicitly taught, right? They're nuanced. They're implicit. You won't find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible, that doesn't make it any less true, because what we're trying to do is use the analogy of faith, interpreting all of Scripture in a way that doesn't create contradictions. Using the clear, interpreting the unclear, so that it unpacks the way that Jesus expresses who He is in in Scripture.
1: And Another example would be the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden, and so a biblicist would say there is no. Let, let me just explain what that is. So the covenant of works is the covenant of which. Adam enters into a covenant with God through which they need to be obedient in order to take many sons to glory. And then if if Adam succeeds in obeying the terms of the covenant, then he can eat of the tree of life along with all of his posterity. But of course, Adam fails. Now, some, some people will say, the biblicist would say, there's no covenant of works in the Garden of Eden, because you don't find the word covenant in the first few chapters of Genesis. Now, The thing about that is, well, firstly, all of the ideas with covenant are there in the garden. Things like um, God's promises, God's demands. There's this commitment between two parties. But also, you don't find the word sin in Genesis 3. Now, would anyone say that there is no sin in Genesis 3? Well, no. And so we can't just do theology with words like that. Now, Brian, two of the critiques that I often hear coming from the Roman Catholic Church would be these two critiques. One is, sola scriptura isn't in the Bible, so how can you believe it? And then secondly, doesn't sola scriptura lead to people interpreting the Bible however they want? How, how would you respond to those critiques?
0: Yeah, so I think the idea of sola scriptura not being in the Bible isn't entirely true. The word itself won't be there. But the principles are. So we see in Scripture, in 2 Timothy, the the idea that this is God-breathed word, right? This is from his own mouth through individual people, right? He has spoken through his saints. And so what we're looking at is not so much the clear, explicit teachings that the Bible is the sole authority and rule for your life. You might see actually passages that align with that. But we're seeing all of the elements of Scripture that speak about the Word of God as being from Him, as being the light for our feet, as all of these elements. That is teaching us, when you piece them all together, that is teaching us that the Bible is authoritative. It is the sole ultimate authority for the Christian.
1: Yeah, and it's the posture of Jesus and the apostles, isn't it? The way that they understood the Bible to be their final authority. And so they're always quoting the Old Testament. And Jesus even talks about the Old Testament as though it has a divine, unbreakable authority. What else could possibly be on the level of divine, unbreakable authority? Mm. It has to be the Scriptures alone. What, what about that second critique? That don't, don't we just then end up with everyone being their own interpreter and interpreting the Bible in, in their own way and taking it in whatever direction you want? So you might read Jeremiah 29, verse 11, I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, plans to make you prosper and to give you a future, and say, look, that means that tomorrow is going to go well with me because God has promised me a future. Throw it on a coffee cup. <laughs> yes, on, on the magnets and bumper stickers.
0: On the back of that, Jeremiah 29, 11 is not a passage that we can just rip out of the pages of the Bible and interpret any way we please. But there is a historical context in which it was written, written to exiled people of God as they were being told in a very difficult situation that, hey, there are still these plans that I have, this hope to bring you out of this. It's not going to always be like this. There's still grace coming, but it was in the midst of some terrible things and and chaos all around them. It wasn't a very pleasant experience. And I think what we do today is we go, well, that must be my, my verse to live by. Everything is going to be good for me from here on out, because here's the promise of God for my life. And that's just not the case. Now, the problem is, That's what happens when you try to interpret the Bible in an echo chamber, with just you sitting alone in a room, reading whatever passage you come across and saying, what do I feel about this? And what does this mean for my life personally, without any kind of input around you? That's not our view of scripture. That's not the view of the Reformation. It's not the view um, that they've taken on the Bible throughout church history. We are not saying that you can just reject tradition. You know, we are saying tradition bends the knee to the Bible, that it submits itself to the Bible, that it is only authoritative as long as it's consistent with the Bible, but it still holds a high place for the Christian. So the idea of no man is an island. We don't come to the Bible isolated from everyone else and try to piece things together in our own minds. We come together standing on the shoulders of the invisible church that has come before us. 2,000 years of church history where saints have unpacked and wrestled over the text and have become more consistent with it, we stand on their shoulders. And in that vein, we have creeds and confessions that have come out of church history in very key points, where we can now look at them and say, these are consistent unpackings of the Bible. And because they're consistent unpackings of the Bible, they hold some form of authority for us today.
1: Right. So the question you might be wondering is, what has this got to do with the goal of our podcast? And the first thing to say is, we want to ground everything that we say in the Bible. So we, we don't want to come up with anything new, anything novel. We don't want it to be, well, Daniel and Brian say so, and so believe it. And we want to open up the Bible with you and show you that what we teach on justification and sanctification and the law and the gospel flows from the scriptures and that the Bible alone is our authority. But secondly, the message of salvation, that we are qualified by the righteousness of Jesus and not by anything that we've done, is actually grounded in the scriptures themselves. And so that's something that you can't get away from. A justification by grace alone is the cry of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's not a New Testament idea. And so that means it's not like in the Old Testament you were saved by your works and by obeying the law of Moses, and then Jesus comes along and now we're saved by what he's done on the cross. No, the Apostle Paul proves that, doesn't he, in Romans 4, where he, for, for the first few chapters, he's been helping us to see our sin and therefore justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And then in chapter 4, he says, this isn't anything new. I haven't come up with this. And, and he proves it. Paul proves it by going to Abraham and David, the two of of Israel's religion. What Paul does is he points to Genesis 15, verse 6 where we're told Abraham believed God, not believed in God. Many people believe in God. No, he believed God. He, he trusted God at his word. He believed God. and then God credited that to him as righteousness. And so Paul says it wasn't to do with work, which is why in verse 5, Paul says, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, not the good person, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then Paul goes to David, and we see there with David as well, and he quotes Psalm 32, where David says, Blessed is the man of whom the Lord does not count iniquity. And so with Abraham, God credits a righteousness. And with David, God doesn't count his sin towards him. And here Paul is saying, look, it's there. It's in the Old Testament. It is the clear teaching of Scripture. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For those in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to Jesus trusting that promise by faith. Uh, for those of us this side of the cross, we look back trusting in what Jesus has done um, in greater clarity.
0: I think that's the beauty of what you mentioned earlier. You know, At the heart of the Reformation was this principle of sola scriptura. But then there's others out there who said, well, it's a recovering of the gospel. It's this idea of justification by faith. And we would say, okay, I can agree with that. But where does justification by faith come from? Where does it flow from? And it's the scriptures. It is the Scriptures that declares a justification, an alien righteousness, one given to us outside of us that is provided by faith alone. And we believe that that's the testimony of Scripture, and that's what the Reformers believed. And therefore, in heralding the Bible as the ultimate authority, in heralding it as the only true form of God's Word revealed to us, they are also forced to herald the Gospel. And one of the things that we see in Scripture is the statement or the the kind of declaration that Jesus Christ is the main point of every passage of Scripture. And we see this very clearly in Luke 24. This is after Jesus is risen from the dead. He is walking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus and they start to express to him the news about Jesus' death and how this is making them sad, and has, is he the only one who hasn't heard of this news? And what does Jesus say to them? He says, Oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all, the prophets have, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what does he do? He unpacks Moses and the prophets, and he shows them in all of the scriptures himself. He is the point of the entire Bible. And then something that the Bible authors very often do is repeat something more than once in very rapid succession. So when a Bible author does this, when they repeat something two times in a row, that's your cue to listen up and pay attention, right? I think it's, uh, Daniel would say, it's, it's sort of the the old ancient way of highlighting the Bible. And so what does he do? What does Luke do immediately following this when Jesus appears to his other disciples? Well, he says the same thing. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in, in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So here again, he says, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the law, prophets, and writings. That's the threefold way in the ancient world to refer to the entire Hebrew Old Testament. So Jesus very clearly here says, the entire Bible Everything that is written, everything that has come from the mouth of God is about me. And so, in what way is it about Jesus? Well, he says it. Thus it is written Christ should suffer. He would be given. He would rise from the dead on the third day. He must preach. We must preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This should go out to all nations. So, it's not just that it's about Jesus as this figurehead, as this example for us. It's about Jesus and his perfect work on our behalf, it's about his perfect life. His death, his resurrection, it's about a hope and a rest that comes through his hand alone, that we can finally rest and have peace with God because of the work he did and have confidence, not by what we do, but by what we believe.
1: Yeah. And, and that means, doesn't it, that no matter where you are in the Old Testament, it's all about Jesus. And so. We've all heard those Sunday school sermons where, you know, if you're, if you're looking at Daniel in the lion's den, the message is, dare to be a Daniel, you know, <laughs> be brave like Daniel. Or if you're looking at David and Goliath, it's you are a David, you know, pick up your stones and fight all of the Goliaths in your life. And we're told, you know, you need to be like David. And the question is always, what? Sleep with another man's wife and then kill him, <laughs> knock him on the head. You know, is that, is that what I'm being told to do? No, but wherever we are, whether it's Daniel in, in that picture of going into the, the lion's den as a picture of death and then coming out again, a picture of resurrection, or whether it's David, like the Lord Jesus, defeating the, the greater enemy of Satan, sin, or, and death, or if it's the Passover lamb, or the nail-pierced man in Psalm 22, or the temple in, at the end of Ezekiel, wherever you are in the Old Testament, wherever you are in the Bible, it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done to save sinners and to bring us into a relationship with God.
0: One of the things that we have to ask is, if we come to a Bible passage, we need to say, in what way does this relate to Jesus? Because according to his interpretation of the Bible, it's all about him and his work on the cross. Now, sometimes it might not seem as clear in Scripture. We might look at a passage like the Ten Commandments and think, how is this about Jesus? But in some way, it relates to him and his work, whether it prepares for us, it prepares for him or or shows us our need for him, or shows us a clear prophecy towards him, or shows us something that ought to be done in light of what he's done, in one way or another, the entire Bible is about him and his work on the cross. And it's the conviction of Daniel and myself that if we mine out the scriptures as our only ultimate authority, we would find Jesus Christ in a deeper rest in Him and a growing affection for Him. We would find a confidence and a hope and a peace in knowing another who has lived for us, who has died for us, and who has risen for us. In Him we have all the benefits He has gained for us. And so we can rest and we can move on and we can live our lives in light of that grace. And so that's the hope of our podcast and that's the hope of this episode. We want to thank you for joining us today. And wherever you are, we pray that the Lord's grace be with you.